Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have a repeat guest. This is Craig Patterson. He has been engaged in energy conservation issues since the 1970s. And so he is a really great person to talk to on this topic that maybe doesn't get enough attention. It's not one of the sexier topics out there, but I would posit that it's one of the most important issues if you're concerned about climate change, environmental degradation, not just how we're producing the energy, but how we're using it and how we might be abusing it. So welcome to the Green Roof Podcast. Welcome back to the Green Roof Podcast, Craig. Thank you very much, Josh. I look forward to this very much. Great. So, yeah, you can tell folks a little bit about your background. What is your interest in this topic? Certainly. Um, I've been engaged in energy issues going back to the 70s with the beginning of whoops, the Washington State nuclear power plants, um, the aluminum industry um, that they were engaged in. I was wrapping water heaters in the 70s. I've done professional energy services work with blower doors and duct blasters and energy code compliance seven compliance surveys in the 1990s. Uh, I sold copper crickets and sold water and um, solarium systems. I was involved with Oregon Appropriate Technology. So my, my background goes back a, a long time. And currently, I'm very engaged with the Northwest Power Planning Council, who is in some ways the rudder of the Bonneville Power Administration, in that they determined the priorities of the region 41 years ago, being conservation number one and renewables number two. However, when you look back critically, at where we've come from in practice, in theory, in accounting, and in application of understanding past lessons, I think we have, we have done a terrible job. And we need to do much, much better. Carl Jung once said that enlightenment isn't about imaging figures of light, but about making the darkness conscious. Perhaps a corollary in energy conservation might be, energy conservation is not only about new renewable technologies and projected deemed savings, but about learning the lessons of the past. Specifically, the embodied message of rates and rate structures and the ethic of conservation which grew from the past when the Rural Electrification Administration began in the mid-1930s. Should I continue? Yes, please. Um, I would submit that we have not yet learned the lessons of the past and we have forgotten the ethic. Mm -hmm. I, I came to Oregon in the summer of 71 and I've been a customer of Lane Electric for 50 years now. When I started with Lane Electric, electricity cost one cent a kilowatt and $1 basic charge. In fact, that rate had been maintained for the first half of Lane, Lane Electric's 80 year history. 
until the projected energy shortfalls and taking the nuclear path with the Washington Public Power Supply System, affectionately known as WHOOPS. That path has forever changed the present and future with indebtedness that will last for generations. Hmm. Nuclear power once advertised as too cheap to meter hmm. is in reality too expensive to comprehend. With five and a half billion dollars of indebtedness through BPA, while providing 4% of its power and no end in sight for permanent storage. When you add fish and wildlife costs, closing coal generation, removing dams, coupled with distributed generation where new wind and solar are now costing two and three cents a kilowatt, less than the wholesale BPA cost of 3.59 cents. All of this points to significant changes ahead how we address those will depend on how we learn from the past and understand the consequences into the future. While there are many alarming trends about the current situation, I think in some ways the most egregious is that 97% of BPA's public power sales in Oregon are not regulated. When you look at BPA's 2019 fact sheet, it bears this out that the COUs, the consumer-owned utilities, are using 97% of the energy and the IOUs, the investor-owned utilities, are using 3%. And the consumer-owned are not at all regulated by the Public Utilities Commission. When I've asked the Public Utilities Commission if they think that there's something wrong here, they basically ignore my question. So when you look historically at, at what's happened, the lion's share of the cooperative Electri electrification that was happening as a result of the rural elect uh, rural administration um, happened with no rate increases when they built the lion's share of the system. However, since whoops, since the, the late 70s, Lane Electric, my utility of 50 years, has had 23 or 20, 22 or 23 rate increases. It's hard to keep keep track. But what is really undermining conservation in spades is that these COUs, consumer-owned utilities, that are not regulated, are increasing the, the basic charge. Lane Electric has gone from $12.50 to $34.50 in a decade, mm -hmm. almost three times. And that is not that is um, the rule, not the exception. Meanwhile, the general manager, salary and benefits, is making a salary over 300K. Top employees are making 125 to 175K. 
And the board of directors has increased their compensation tenfold in the last decade, all which speak to their real priorities and lack of conservation. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the rural communities they serve have experienced serious economic downturns as rural jobs disappear in droves. In the 1980s, wood products employment in Lane County was above 70%. Today, it's four to five percent as one metric. Another is the school, di- the local school district, which had 1,200 plus students in the 70s and 80s. Today, they have 213 grades. All of this points to the, the fact that we have taken the wrong path relative to energy and energy conservation for three important reasons. First, when energy conservation is not universally embodied in rate structures, it directly undermines conservation. Lane Electric's basic is 3450. Blatchley Lane is 53. West Oregon is 42. Compared to the regulated investor-owned utilities, PPNL at 950 and PG&E at 10. This is almost like the new gold rush as there is no oversight in in sight. So, so when you mention, I just want to to interject there. So when you mention regulation, so what what regulations are lacking? What regulations would benefit this? I'm not 100 percent clear on that. Well, basically, the regulation relative to, I mean, there's a number of things that they basically have said the consumer-owned utilities. Um, have the best interest of their customers at heart because the customers are the board of directors. And that was very true for the first half of their existence. But it's changed in the last half of their existence. I see. I see. So, But the second reason why it's important that rate structures embody conservation is that if we don't learn the lessons of projected shortfalls, then we're going to never achieve uh, a stable electric electric, um, industry, which we had the first half of our history. And what but also the fact that excessive consumption Mm. today is ignored and even encouraged Mm. in some utilities with declining block rates. Mm. One utility that has declining block rates told me that their high residential usage is over 22,000 kilowatt hours a month. The average is between 1,000 and 1,500. Mm, wow. And there's no consequences, there's no learning mm-hmm. while we're subsidizing excessive consumption. Mm-hmm. The third reason that I speak of is the fact that 40 years ago, there were ethics. Mm-hmm. Today, today, there are none. Mm-hmm. The whole notion of the public good when viewed from rate structures and current board decisions, basically punish people who conserve mm. 
or who are on fixed energy budgets. Yeah. And one of the ways that this really plays out, I, as one who conserves to the nth degree, mm -hmm. typically, other than wintertime, use under 200 kilowatts a month, about one-fifth or less of what's average. Mm -hmm. And one way to compare utilities with different rate structures is to apply different usage, usage patterns. Right. When you apply 170 or 200 kilowatts, my basic charge is 68% of my bill. Uh -huh. If I was using the average, it would be 28%. Right, right. And if I was with PPNL, it would be in, in you know, 15%. Right. So, sure. So there's there's that aspect. The other aspect about conservation is that eighty percent of the benefits go to twenty percent of the customers, mm. because any program that requires out-of-pocket expenses, whether it be renters or middle class or low income, mm -hmm. they can't afford it. And so that's what the studies are showing that it's in some ways conservation has become social engineering in reverse. Sure. Yeah. There's two other reasons. And one of them is the fact that about 98% of energy conservation is projected or deemed. There is no verification over time. And the only programs that require verification are pay for performance, which are rarely, rarely used. So if someone takes the $75 for the energy efficient refrigerator and buys a big, bigger space heater for their Winnebago and puts the old refrigerator in the basement for the boys, right. that's still counted as conservation. I see. Yeah. But perhaps the most really egregious part is the extreme lack of openness and transparency mm -hmm. in these co-ops, mm -hmm. where my own experience two weeks ago, when I made a five-minute presentation to the board about an update of this work that has been going on for a couple of years now, they would not talk to me in private. And they went into executive session in order to discuss what I said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, we've got a, a really bad situation that is being ignored on many, many fronts. Yep. And it's, it's time that we, we do some truth and reconciliation. Totally agree. Yeah. So my only engagement with utilities was it was in 2008 and I had to actually pull this up because I barely remember this stuff, but myself and uh, Shannon Wilson and Mark Rabinowitz, both of whom have been on the podcast and you know who they are. Uh, we started a petition to prevent EWEB, which is Eugene Water and Electric Board from 
putting forth an $85 million bond to build a brand new building in the West Eugene wetlands. And we were advocating, well, there are a lot better ways you can spend the money. And this may, may or may not have direct correlation to what you've been talking about, but this, this is just my entry point. And so we tried to gain enough signatures to get things on the ballot. We started it late. It was not great organized. We only got half of the signatures. We did call a lot of attention to it, but basically it was, we were trying to raise those issues back then. And yeah, that's when I knew right away that obviously there are positive aspects to public utilities and, and cooperatives certainly, but sometimes the public really doesn't get a say. And we knew, wait a second, that we have all these energy crises, we have all these things going on, and this is where they want to spend their money. So I definitely knew back then the corruption and your you're going more in depth about that and it's continuing to this day. And another piece, I, I think you basically also brought up the ethics piece, which I think is really important. I'd like to talk more about that because I think that's what's missing from everything. Aldo Leopold talked about the land ethic, of course, and we do, we are going through that sort of tragedy of the commons thing where it's like you use less energy and therefore you should probably be charged less, right? It should be less of a rate. So you shouldn't just be encouraged to, to use more and more, but that's not the way at all. And like you said, you're basically proportionally being charged more uh, for all that. So there's only an incentive to do more harm. And that's, that's what it seems to be in our society. It, it would be nice if we could at least not incentivize doing harm. Maybe we don't have to reward doing the right thing, but we're, we're incentivizing doing the wrong thing. So short of people's consciousness evolving to establish an ethic, what are we supposed to do about this? Well, we have to be engaged and we have to be informed and we have to know what's going on. And you brought up eWeb, you know, 30, 40 years ago, eWeb was was one of the leaders in energy conservation. And now they are, I believe, somewhere in the middle of, I believe, a 15-year contract buying biomass from Seneca right. at, I believe it's 8.7 cents a kilowatt hour, almost three times the wholesale rate they buy from Bonneville. And then Eugene gets the pollution for free. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And this is an th this was a non-disclosed I mean that number of what they're paying came from an editorial in the Eugene Red Register Guard because it is it's only a 15 year contract I believe but it's not open. It's not transparent. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. I forgot about that. I had moved out of town by the time that was happening, but I was following that pretty closely at the time when I was working on biomass stuff. And basically it's one of the largest timber companies, clear cutters, pesticide sprayers, old growth loggers in the state of Oregon. They had a sawmill and they built a biomass facility because they could sell their quote, clean, green, renewable energy for a premium when everyone was pretending that's clean energy, which some people still are. And yeah, everything was shady behind the, behind the scenes. And I think even the Register Guard newspaper, which is not, in my opinion, uh, free of its own corruption, but they made attempts to get 
some of the documentation and the numbers and they were unable to. I think they even tried to take it into courts or at least did public records requests and I think they were refused. So yeah, that's some shady stuff going on there with eWeb, which as you said, has done a lot of good things. And, that, and that's the thing, there's no pure evil entities, right? You can obviously point towards things that are being done by Bonneville Power that are positive, but that doesn't mean that we can't critique them. If we can't, we can't learn from the past. Right. That's right. And that's that's the thing that is so frustrating. And and there's even, you know, the 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 dysfunction in conservation is is even much more deep than than that in many ways because people who do the evaluations, which I've done myself, and in fact I did one. Um, this was for the, and the 1990 Energy Code Compliance Survey, which was looking at how effective the Energy Code was actually being applied. And this is through structures that applied for the Energy Code and, and the benefits thereof. And I, I did one house in Eugene where I looked in the crawl space above the garage and there wasn't a stitch of insulation over the kitchen, which probably had 25 can lights sticking up through the ceiling. Mm -hmm. It would have been a chimney for the heat. And I came to that house right after the, the inspector had just done the final. And I did mention this to the contractor and he was thankful because he had paid for that that to be um, insulated. Part of the issue though, is you've got the heat of the canisters. So you've got to protect it from being combustible. It's not necessarily a simple thing, but with, with focus and, and diligence, it can be done. And that was just one example. I, I've talked with other, other people who've stayed in the evaluation business much longer than I, who have said over 50% of the tests that they're doing are not making minimum um, standards. I see. But it's being passed along because nobody wants to be looking bad. Right. Right. That's so, you know, the the lack of credible evidence and understanding and learning in the field of energy and conservation by far makes the most sense. Right. If we don't exhaust conservation, renewables don't make. But but the eighth energy plan where the Northwest Power Planning Council is heading, mm -hmm. it's basically a reversal of the priorities, giving renewables 90% of the benefit and conservation, maybe five. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really huge because personally, I do think obviously there are plenty of drawbacks to different forms of renewables. I do think biomass does more harm than good. I think wind and solar have their impacts. Uh, we have to be aware of those and maybe in some cases it's not worthwhile, but it seems like we're likely going to be moving forward with that. But if we're not doing conservation and efficiency on top of it, it's kind of just a lot of window dressing. And, and 
I use that term efficiency as well, because you're talking about the retrofitting of homes where they go in and they check out uh, basically how, if it's airtight, I know in Vermont, a lot of it was around heating concerns and making sure homes are a lot airtight, they're not leaking and things like that. You're saying that even that is, I don't want to say corrupted, but being done in a kind of half-assed way. But would you say the term conservation and efficiency are are both relevant? You focus just in terms of terminology? When they're applied appropriately, absolutely. Right. They're, they're critically important. But we don't, let me give you some more examples of, of how um, misdirected, I think is the best word, because I think a lot of these people have, have their hearts in the right place and they want to do good. They want to, they want to improve things. But for example, um, Lane Electric, uh, the, the energy person there told me that they've spent as much as $5,000 putting new windows in a, in a mobile home, in a mobile home that probably has very little, if any insulation in the walls. Right. Right. And that if they were to put thermal shutters on that mobile home, I believe they could do it at one fifth the cost, no, one tenth the cost, $500. And five times the effectiveness because you would go insulated when single windows and insulated windows are not that different in our value, basically one to two. But if you were to put an insulated shutter of an R10 for one tenth of the cost and then put the rest of the money in putting another insulate insulative skin on the outside and the roof, you would have a far better situation. But part of the Achilles heel of that, the utilities say, is, well, we need solutions that don't require owner diligence. Uh-huh. Mm. As if to say, people can't learn what's in their best interest. Well, <laughs> sadly, they're, I don't want to be on their side, but isn't there a little bit of truth to that, that people don't want to do anything that takes a little bit extra time? I think that we need at least the choice. Okay. And that high basic charges take the choice away from us. True. And what I've proposed in terms of a conservation um, rate would be that the first 400 kilowatts be at cost, essentially, a pass-through, maybe four cents a kilowatt. Right. And then each tier above that, and you need a lot of tiers, not one or two tiers. You need tiers with maybe 200 kilowatts between tiers that maybe go up eight-tenths of a cent Mm -hmm. so that you get up 10 tiers and now you're talking 20 cents a kilowatt. Right. And if that doesn't get someone's attention mm. about conservation, either they're an indoor grow and they don't care, right. or they'll take serious immediate steps to try to do something. Yeah. And yeah. With, the, with the additional revenue that that could generate, sending the right message of conservation. Yeah, 
then you can apply that to solving the problem. Yeah, well, to me, that seems pretty clear and obvious. The idea of, okay, you're using less energy and it's extremely cheap for you. That seems like a pretty basic reward. And you think that it would fall in line with what a utility company is trying to do. However, you sort of hinted at earlier that they're not really necessarily interested in lowering the rate of consumption. Am I putting words in your mouth? No, no, absolutely. That, and, but that's part of what's the problem. They have taken on the capitalistic notion of growth Mm -hmm. and that if they're not growing, you know, but energy is, is different than many commodities. Um, And we have abused it. We have abused it in the way that we have developed it. And we've abused it in the way that we waste it. And that the first thing that we need to do is get back to this ethic of conservation, because you know one of the things I've I've said to the Power Planning Council in my many discussions there is that you know they put a lot of money and, and effort into low flow shower heads, mm-hmm. you know, basically putting a washer constrictor in between the shower head. And even with that, if you take a half an hour shower with the water going full blast, you're not conserving much. But if you take a shower where the water comes out a foot and is just where you need it and you use as little as possible because you have that ethic, we're far better off. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. But of course, that is dependent on the individual to have some sort of ethic. ethic. And there could be lots of debate as to why some people have an ethic and why folks don't. But I had an individual on the podcast. The episode was called Integral Integral Environmentalism. His name was uh, Michael Zimmerman. And we talked about this concept of a biocentric line of development. So basically we evolve as human beings, as, as children, and then as adults, and we go from egocentric to group centric to caring about the world. And we have different lines of development, maybe caring about family, people, whatever, but there is this biocentric as in caring about the natural world, the environment, nature, that is a line of development. And the people who care, have reached that level of basically consciousness evolution and those who have not have not. And it's really hard to instill that in them. However, if there was a financial incentive for doing so, then you don't necessarily need to have the ethical touchy feelies of caring about the natural world. You're like, well, this is just a good economic decision. So do you think that that can help if not instill the ethic encourage the behavior that accords to that ethic? They go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. The ethic and, and the rate structure have to go hand in hand mm-hmm. in order to be effective. Sure. But what's really fascinating is that, um, is to try, is listening to people like at the Northwest Power Planning Council, essentially try to 
argue against fundamental economic principles. Uh. You know, the, the price is the message. And whether or not the message incorporates externalities and unintended consequences or not is part of the analysis, but it's not all of it either. And when, when we have declining block rates that reward excessive consumption that have driven us over the edge once and we didn't learn, mm-hmm. how many times can it drive us over the edge? Yeah, well, I think that's I think that's a good question. I mean, the way I've looked at the world for the last couple decades was, yes, we need to be incentivizing appropriate behavior, whatever that means in terms of, I don't know, not murdering people, but also in the natural world, right? So we should be rewarding good behavior. And I don't want to use the word punishing, but disincentivizing other types of behavior. However, I see that happening almost almost never. Like I, I see the opposite. I see almost in general, but I think it applies to this particular topic. I see incentivizing of the wrong behavior and literally a punishing of the right behavior. And so ideally, yes, for people to really buy into something, they're going to at least need to not be punished it would be nice if we actually incentivized it. But what I'm starting to realize is like, there's hardly anything that even operates like that in our society. I'm not trying to be fatalistic or pessimistic here. I'm just making an observation and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost as if the only way, you know, you're doing the right thing is if you're being punished for it. Now, I would like to see our society evolve, and I'm sure there are some aspects of our society that do reward good behavior. None are coming to my mind right now, but I'm sure I'm sure they exist. So, are you are you hopeful that we can start instating some of these things? In let's just say focusing obviously on this energy thing rather than taking into the whole world as I just did. So this concept of this very simple, very basic, what would seem to be non-controversial concept of you use less, you pay less, not just in terms of, oh, well, guess what? You're using less kilowatts. So the, the rate that's the same for everyone, you're, you're spending less. That's fine. It's like, no, it's, it's a whole, it's a lot more of an incentive. Cause like you said, you use very little, but your base rate or whatever it is, is still a large percentage. So you're, you're being disincentivized from doing that. So this very basic concept what are the obstacles to putting it into place? Well, the first one is openness and transparency. Okay. You know, the first one is just basic respect. And I'm afraid that, that this lack of openness and transparency in my own direct experience is, is not only with Lane Electric and, and Blatchley Lane and West Oregon cooperatives, um, it's also with PNGC, Pacific Northwest Generating Cooperative, which is the umbrella of the cooperatives in the state. Um, it also is in terms of tr- when I, in in discussing the importance of conservation and the fact that we need to not abandon it mm-hmm. with the Power Planning Council the what i've found is that 
many people um, will agree with me in public, I mean, in private, but they won't say anything in public. Sure. And there's, you know, you can't create synthesis or integration if there's not an openness and transparency to hearing all sides. Yeah. That's just fundamental. That's just fundamental. So, um, and it's it's gotten bad at, in our universities. Um, I've had that this experience at Oregon State of late, yep. um, where I've I've tried to ask a relevant question uh, about forestry, being where does the simultaneous integration of environmental health, economic vitality, and social equality manifest as a research question and go away kid is the answer you know and it's but it's it's in it seems like it's in all fields right now and that's what it is that's what i think is most um disturbing because what they give what they offer higher education today is little more than group think. Yes. And group think cannot uh, deal with independent thinkers at all. Yes. Yes. That's it. Well, that's, that's a, I think that's a universal point. And that's something I've experienced my whole life. And of course, people can say, oh, that's because you're crazy, or you're just a dick, and no one likes you. And it's like, well, guess what, maybe those things can also be true. And, and once in a while, bringing up a valid point. But of course, no, I've seen this, not just in myself, but in, in many, many other people who I greatly respect, and who have great things to say, and many of whom have come on my podcast. So it's like, you bring up a piece of information, right? It's pretty documented in science and logic and rationality and all the pieces. You present it to the authority, the established authority, and basically they 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 tip, they'll just ignore it because they can just uh, just nothing. No no respond back to the email. No respond back to the comment. Uh, the the gaslighting just like oh none of that's ever happened here, even though it's right in front of your face, or even worse. They offer you an opportunity for public comment, which is basically just pissing into the wind. So like, they're like, here, dump your idea into this black hole. And now you'll feel like you did something. And most people fall for that. And I'm not saying to not participate in that, but people think that just because you sent in your comment, that means it's like, no, that's the way of basically taking your energy and making it seem like you accomplished anything. So, but here's the thing, if you were an entity and you are tasked with making as much money as possible and not dealing with all this stuff, and you're legally bound to your shareholders to do so, you're going to ignore a Craig Patterson. You're going to ignore a Josh Schlossberg, right? Because why the hell wouldn't you? And the thing is, that's why we're supposed to have environmental movements, right? Where they can take on these pieces and keep advocating for them so they can put it out there and they can pressure the elected officials because of that. The environmental movement says this, they can educate the rest of the public who doesn't know about this. Craig is right on this. Let's let's make sure we make this happen. They can make sure that the media covers something. But the problem is, is the environmental movements don't want to take it on because 
their funding comes from a particular source and like we don't have funding to do this thing because our corporate grant foundation doesn't want us to use less energy media ignores it because frankly most journalists are just incompetent and they just unless something's dangled in front of their face that is interesting for the moment or gets clicks they're not going to report on it and politicians don't do a damn thing unless they're forced to and without the environmental movement pushing them or the media reporting on it why the hell would they so it's this theme that comes up over and over on the podcast. And I'm sure some people are like, why do you keep complaining about that? Because this is the structure. These are the structures, the corrupt structures that prevent ideas that make perfect sense that I'm sure every single person listening to this podcast agrees with Craig's idea for these structured rates here. And most sane people would as well, but it doesn't get out there because the system is broken. And, I, <laughs> I, I don't I don't say that just just to finish. I don't say that to be just negative. I'm just saying here is the thing that we run up against every time over and over again. And yeah, it's pretty frustrating to me, as you can tell. So you're curious what you think about that. Craig. Well, Josh, I mean, I understand. I agree. I've I've been engaged in political stuff since 63. Uh -huh. Um I'm 71 <laughs> and um, I feel it, but um, I think that a couple things, I think, first of all, um, we can't negate what we do because it didn't work or didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. We educated ourselves in the process. We had fire in our belly about it. We, you know, it gave us reason to get up in the morning and, and to do things. So there's silver linings to it. And I think one of the hardest lessons in life is attempting to learn to not be attached to the fruits of our actions. Yes. And if we can recognize that it is an ongoing battle, an ongoing challenge, and that the trends, I mean, you know, what's at risk is nothing short of extinction. Yes. And we're not learning the lessons. We're not paying attention. We're not. And the, the amount of discourse and, and analysis is so elementary in most instances and so um, inbred. As part of it, the group think, and the inability of independent thinkers to penetrate um, and to engage and create that synthesis and integration. But it's the only game in town. Yeah. Too. You know, and I think that if you're aware of these things and if you're motivated by these things, um, by wanting to make things better for ourselves and for our future generations, then, you know, part of it is the gift in, in just knowing and doing it. Um, sure. And, and not giving up and recognizing that we have to just keep working on that hundredth monkey. Sure. And if, sure. We, if we can, and I think that there's signs um, you know, when when people who are, are groomed, you know, to go through the PhD program and get to the end of it and then reject it, 
and don't want to participate in it after that, that tells you something. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's not the common practice, but but that is happening. And even in my own experience, reaching out to, you know, top um, top people in their fields, um, professors of ethics and, and philosophy and, and all, and having them be honest and basically say, there isn't any ethics and honesty in higher education today. Mm-hmm. But how do we challenge that? And how do we recognize that if it happened on our watch, we're culpable? Yeah. 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 No, I really like what you said. And I know I tend to take things very conceptual and then it takes it away from the topic and we can certainly get back more to energy conservation stuff. But to me, I see every topic as a portal to the same issues, which is some of the stuff that I brought up, but you did, you did bring up a really good point and not being attached to the fruits. And I do agree with that. And and I do think that's a difficult thing to juggle because it's like you want to see progress. You want to learn from your mistakes. But at the same time, hey, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But if it doesn't work out just because I was lazy, that's that's not great. So I, I get that. But to extend that analogy, so not being attached to the fruits, what I'm seeing is we can't even plant the tree like because people are salting the soil all around us. Right. So to extend this crazy analogy. So if uh, let's just say all the things above the, the large environmental movements, the, the media, the politicians, the corporations, they're all salting the soil. So we can't even plant that tree, much less get fruits. Um, then we have the other tree farmers. They're like, they don't like how we're picking the salt out of the ground because we use like two fingers instead of three fingers. They we're a three finger salt picker and the two finger salt pickers. Oh, they're, they're bad. We're going to actually launch a campaign to make sure that the two finger salt pickers don't get you know what I mean? So like, that's a crazy analogy and and ridiculous, but I don't think it's that far off, right? We, we get so in the weeds, we end up, we're fighting other environmentalists, which sometimes in, in a real way, in in a legitimate way. Um, And sometimes I've always employed the tactic of calling in before calling out. So you try to talk to these folks internally, Hey, I really think a lot of what you're doing is great, blah, blah, blah. We've been together on this thing, but how about this thing? And they think you're Satan for doing that. And then all you're left with is either calling them out publicly or basically creating something different. And that's what I'm personally right now trying to engage in behind the scenes, seeing if there is a model that can exist separately. So then we can plug in brilliant ideas such as this idea of the the rate structure the graduated tiered rate structure but it's the it's the corrupt system that we have to keep engaging in that is really frustrating and and i and i totally agree that we need to well hey we are doing what we need to do this is good for our soul all of these things we do it no matter what i i 100 agree with that and it may not work out um but i do also want to not keep banging my head against the wall for my whole life where it's just wading through this corruption over and over. And I already know, I already know what they're going to do. Every time I hold out the hand, you know, they, they smack the hand down. So it's like after 42,000 times, if you hold out your hand and you expect them not to smack the hand down, it's like, come on, man, you got to know they're going to smack the hand down. So 
I, I, I do think that you are, you are spot on in terms of the proper philosophical orientation to this and the ideas behind it. I just think there's one other piece that as a environmental movement that we need to address. And I'm not quite sure how to do that. <laughs> well, I, the way I would respond is that, and one of the things that I do, having been at it for 45 years yeah. or longer, actually, um, is have multiple issues right. that I'm engaged in. So when, um, when I run into a dead end with my local utility, I take it to a different place or the PNGC or, and I'm deeply engaged, as you know, in forestry issues. And I continue on that. And I um, interject in uh, conversations about global warming, mm -hmm. um, trying to bring back, for example, in the, the um, current Lane County effort, try to bring into perspective the history of forestry yep. Yep. and how the Willamette National Forest has 110 years of history. And in the 40 years between 1950 and 1990, they cut over 25 and a half billion board feet. Mm -hmm. And in the other 70 years, they cut less than five. Mm -hmm. And that Mark Harmon talks about how after a clear cut, it takes maybe 20 years to get back to zero mm -hmm. before you even start sequestering. Yep. And then it's a slow process to get back to those old growths that we never get back to. Yeah. So, you know, the serious short-term impacts of human industry yep. that are undermining our longevity are off the charts and we seem to would rather focus on planting trees right. than stopping the hemorrhaging. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's a perfect point. Another analogy is the whole bathtub thing, right? Where it's like, what is it? We keep uh, filling up the bathtub and that's the problem. And what we're doing is we're kind of taking a bunch of towels and putting them around the edge of the tub. It's like, turn off the faucet. And we don't seem to be able to do that. So, but to take this back, I mean, for the last 10 minutes or so, to take this back to the energy conservation issue and then some of the the deeper points that you made that I think are really important and often left out. And I know you always bring things back to that in terms of kind of the individual engagement on these issues. So the ethic concept. So let's, let's leave aside the corrupt entities that I'm ranting about and, and how to deal with that and the whole process and go back to the individual's engagement, which is really ultimately what it all comes down to. Now there are people who will say, Oh, you're just focused on this little stuff and it doesn't matter because of the corporations. And I'm saying, we also have to look at the corporations. We, we look at ourselves and we look at how we're feeding into the corporation. So it's all of the above. Everyone is right, but you know, everyone's looking at one piece, but taking it to the individual use, which is where energy comes from, right? Like we, we are talking about energy, individual energy use, and then the corporations that use all this energy because they're selling us crap. So 
if we look at it in terms of maybe there won't be a financial reward. Let's let's just say that there's not going to be a financial reward for using less energy. What are some other rewards or not even framing it in terms of other rewards? What what are what are some other aspects of fulfillment to using less in general, specifically energy, but just in general, if you could speak to that. Well, I, I guess the best way is what Gandhi said, that there's enough for every man's need, but not for every man's greed. Mm-hmm. And if, if that's one's ethic, then not wasting, you know, is, is important, is critically important. And one of the questions that that has raised in my mind, well, maybe for 10 years now, which is kind of a global question about this, but it says, why is it that those religions that view heaven in the clouds seem to trash the planet with impunity, while those religions that see God, Gaia, and nature as one wouldn't dream of trashing the planet and had reverence. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we need to, I think we need to think in terms of, you know, our, our essence, our collective unconscious, our, um, our history mm. and understand that, um, we have to come to terms with some, major and basic dysfunctions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in some ways it goes back to the beginning of Christianity. And how how is it that a religion of 2,000 years, which destroyed the Egyptians, which destroyed indigenous cultures all over the planet, which burned women and witches, not women, which burned women, all in the name of love and tolerance. If that's not the essence of doublespeak, 1984 style, I don't know what is. And yet it persists to this day. So, you know, or, or, you know, if you take it to biomass, you know, if you look at what is the energy return on energy investment, a basic economic concept it doesn't make any sense even from that perspective, let alone all of the environmental perspectives. So there's, there's so many disconnects that I think have become so endemic in our way of life that um, it's a challenge to find where we can break through. But if we have that inkling we can't let it go. Yes. I do agree with that. And I think some people, a lot of environmentalists get uncomfortable with anything turns into the looking at the individual psychology or spirituality or whatever you want to call it. And of course, because I do think a lot of people think anytime you're dealing with thinking of us in connection with I don't know what we call a higher power. I don't believe in the concept of God, but I do believe that there is some energy that is worth revering. And to me, it's exists in the natural world and exists in doing the right thing whenever possible and 
trying the best I can to not harm my fellow human. But of course, then we have this aspect of religions such as Christianity that have done some horrible things. So then we tend to shy away from the idea of, oh, well, any form of, say, looking at transcendence or whatever is the same as that. And of course, that's just a very rigid, low consciousness way of looking at our connection to the universe. In fact, if you take a lot of those religions, Judaism, Christianity, back to their source, they were pretty damn mystical. And it was these structures that were created later that made them into basically agents for the state and all of this this garbage. So it's almost like, can we go back? But at the same time, we're moving forward, but there's all this baggage. And so most people don't want to have anything to do with it. There are very few environmentalists who you can talk about consciousness with or anything like that. And a lot of people you can talk to about that stuff aren't so well versed on, say, ecological issues. So they're kind of just airy fairy up in the up in the sky. So I do think this concept of integrating, there's this concept of integral where you bring all of these pieces together. That's what's necessary. But who the hell has the time for that? <laughs> I mean, I do because I've I've made that my life, but I don't know if I can really expect most people to to get on board with that. So what's an easy entry point? <laughs> like, like you would have an easy answer for this, but is there a way that we can think of an easy entry point to not pretending that I know all this stuff, but I'm open to it. And that's, that's all we're asking is people being open to another way of looking at things. What's an easy way to onboard to that, to that, what I'm talking about, Craig, if you have any ideas. Well, for, for me, Josh, I had the, the wonderful opportunity of going to college in the 60s mm. and going to an experimental college where the sophomore class was spent in India. Wow. And we were the guinea pigs. We were the charter class. And I spent um, a number of weekends in Pondicherry at the Sri Aurobindo Ashram. Mm. And I studied Sri Aurobindo and I studied with Dr. Chaudhry in at the California Institute of Integral Studies after coming back. And one of the things that Sri Aurobindo said that has always been central to me is he said, consciousness is the key, consciousness is the means, consciousness is the end. And I think that's the best way to try to address your question from, from, from my experience. Yeah. That's really you know, good. Well, I think know, that's, that's a really great way to end this. I mean, we could obviously go on for for hours and folks thought that they were just going to be hearing about energy conservation. But if you go deep with enough of these topics, you can open up into all of this. And I would argue that's kind of what's needed. We have to stop looking at all these little issues with blinders just in this little box and and bring them all together like the way you're doing. You're looking at energy conservation. You're also looking at stuff that's going on in the forest. So do you have any last words for the listeners? Well, I, I would just encourage you, Josh, to continue what you're doing because I think that this is a tremendous service. And I am very thankful for all that you're doing with this. And I hope that you will continue with it. 
in some capacity because I think you're good at it. And I think that you bring voice out into the open that oftentimes is not heard very often. So I'm thankful for that. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm thankful for you. The best part about these podcasts is talking to people and being able to hear maybe some ideas I'm already familiar with and resonate on that and then hear new ideas and then go back and forth. The monologue, which I can do is limiting, right? But when you have a dialogue, it's like, it's more than one plus one equals two. It's like one plus one equals infinity. So I really appreciate you coming on and yeah, I, I, I think all these issues need to be continued to discuss and whether I'm the one doing them or other people are, I think the work needs to continue. So thanks again, Craig, and we'll definitely have to stay in touch. Thank you and stay safe. Thank you.